0: Greetings listeners, Craig here with a brief message before you listen to the podcast that you've clicked on. This is being released during the 2023 WGA and SAG-AFTRA strikes. Without the labour of the writers and actors currently on strike, the thing you're about to listen to us talk about wouldn't exist. We stand with those on strike and support their desire to be recognised for the wonderful work they do. Now please enjoy our discussion.
1: Hi, I'm Derek de Villiers. I am a Vancouver-based actor. I have been... On Charms Turner and Hooch and Snake Eyes Jojo
2: Origins, the movie. You're listening to the Neo Before Podcast.
1: Do you want to count us down?
2: <laughs> you count me down.
1: <laughs> um, yeah, four or five two, one go.
2: <laughs> Neil before blog presents. <laughs> Neil before pod. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good night, and welcome to the Kneel Before Pod Tavern. Perhaps Kneel Before Grog? I've got to get my obligatory pun in there before somebody else does as your GM. Aaron, I feel like I should lead, as yes, I know our party of adventures is going to carry on. But here for your pleasure, I offer you the chance to adventure with us through the grand tale of Dungeons & Dragons Honor Amongst Thieves. For this adventure, I have gathered together a capable party who delights at the challenge of analysing tales for your pleasure. Enter Craig the Artificer.
0: Hello, let it be known that I do traffic in cloak realisms.
2: Good, on topic, Pond. You are then our Honourable Artificer, a content creator yourself who will argue from experience. As you find yourself then, Craig, before the edifice that is Dungeons and Dragons, Honour Among Thieves. You must tell our listeners what brings you here and what is your connection to D&D, if anything, before this film.
0: Basically, I had no connection to Dungeons & Dragons before this film other than knowing about it. It's one of those things that osmosis means that you just kind of know about it. But I had almost no expectations because I didn't know what the thing was really beyond the stuff that I've seen it referred to. I've played the Baldur's Gate game, which you then told me is a Dungeons & Dragons game. That's how little I knew. Nice. So, yeah, I'm coming in as the noob, the level one. Is that the right thing? It is.
2: Well done. Yeah, you're, you're right in there. Well met, Craig, <laughs> the innocent Anticipa then. But you do not travel alone. That You'll be travelling with hubris into hubris.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> Hello. I am hubris, the human
4: fighter. I'm a straightforward type. Maybe I've got ulterior motives. You don't know. You might find out. Some way down the, the line on our adventure.
0: Should we say what his real name is in case listeners no, don't know? No,
4: you, you don't break him <laughs> out. That's just enough. Can, you can work it out. My connection to to D&D is I've been playing for a few years, learned from a Dungeons & Dragons for Dummies 4th edition <laughs> book, <Wow. laughs> which came with kind of ready-made characters, very kind of straightforward um, examples of very basic classes. But yeah, I played a bit of 4th edition and now play 5th edition fairly regularly with a party I portray a swashbuckling rogue by the name of Darian oh, Darkfrost nice. who I saw in several instances throughout the d d movie I, I felt a, a connection mm. like things I've adventured and experienced were brought to mm. life on the screen. Very good
2: that'll be a talking yeah. point for so later you can tell yeah. us all about Darius but well met, hubris an experienced player to keep poor old craig on the right tracks and yet we are still not complete as a party because we are also welcoming hibiscus enter hibiscus
1: hibiscus enters the tavern
2: tell us about hibiscus
1: well i can't remember what the categories were that i chose from but i do know that (laughs) i'm like a paladin no i'm like a what am i
2: The barkeep gently wanders over and whistles to you behind a towel so nobody can hear. You said you're a ranger paladin.
1: I'm a ranger paladin and I believe in the power of a good story and will call out things if I believe they're failing to do that.
4: You also look like you're interested in all things natural, nature, environmental.
1: Yeah. Yeah, 100%. I am, and I'm called Hibiscus, which I think is a cool name and needs to come back. Apparently, that was a real name. I think
2: for the benefit of the audience, though, given you're the only person who's ever LARPed on this podcast, you should tell everybody what you're wearing, your costume.
1: I'm the only person who's ever LARPed. LARPed. LARped.
2: You're in costume. (laughs) (laughs) We're a joyless bunch.
1: I am wearing a really wonderful green and blue and sort of brown ochre... Stripey poncho Which is really lovely And feels like it would be Very befitting of a tiefling Or some sort of woodland Elf And I know I'm mixing classes And races right there Am I? I just think it
4: would go down very well in the high forest
1: Yes it would And I've got my cat ears on That are like hollow Pearly Because I loved the cat In the movie, and I wear my D20 earrings, which are blue and purple and quite magical looking. And I'm wearing jeans and socks (laughs) that have llamas on them,
2: also befitting a ranger.
1: That are from Christmas time.
2: Well, you've dressed up a a lot more than any of us ever did for a podcast, so I think it was worth worthy of mention. You are indeed then a great party who has assembled here. I was going to say under the leadership of Craig, but actually he seems like the most innocent of the party, so maybe I need a new party leader instead.
1: Yeah. Do I get to answer how I came to D&D? I was, I
2: was so <laughs> dazzled by your costume, I forgot to bring that in. By all means. Yeah.
1: Thanks. Thank you. Ooh, dazzled um, by that
0: mental image of the costume.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I joined Angus, or Hubris, on his first venture into D&D, where he was our DM. And it was fantastic. Thank you. And we played irregularly. And did we? Irregularly, yes. Yeah, it was so. It was so long ago in the deep past. One can scarce remember. But I did have fun. And I was an elf. I was a rogue elf, and it was great. And I just basically tried to steal everyone's money from. There's always one. Or I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Um. So I had a good time. And then that yeah I've not actually D and D for a wee while I did like a sort of one off D and D recently with some friends which was really magical and we're doing some D and D what is called like one shot like a sort of one shot you do like a sort of standalone miniature campaign and we're doing that again on a Saturday with some friends who are sort of venturing into D and D via Stranger Things so it has become you know it was one of those things osmosis widely known. People sort of knew about it. I think, obviously, we'll talk about it a bit more. But Stranger Things absolutely sort of provided a whole new gateway yeah. for a lot of people.
4: gave it a boost. And so Yay. these people are interested in trying it out with us.
1: Yeah, so we're going to do that oh. on Saturday. And we'll help guide some newbies through that. And I would say, I've not played D&D for a wee while, so Hubris does still play. Um, I tend to do things like Call of Cthulhu. I like the sort of one-to-one journeys that you can do in a night, or as the one that's currently going on over a few months, because we've not been back to it. But yeah.
2: Well, i have to come to you for your yeah, experience role-playing angles, Then That's perfectly reasonable. Mm, yes. So with our party assembled, I will ask all of you here in front of our assembled listeners, if you do indeed dare to enter the realm of honour amongst these once again, to do battle with the evils that ruin our film's enjoyment, and to search for treasured characters and moments that will warm mm. our hearts... I ask you then, gathered party, will you accept this challenge?
1: (gasps) Let's do it. I accept. That's 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 what I wanted to hear. (laughs) It sort
2: of built up then with, yeah, might as well, all the way up to for fortune and glory. I like that.
1: (laughs) Uh (laughs) I accept, that sounds magical
2: In which case, I must get you to get your D20s ready Because each of our sections this evening Of which there are four, not including the boss fight at the end Mm -hmm. There will be a small contest And in this contest, (laughs) each of our heroes Mm -hmm. will be rolling a D20 And they will gain a bonus if their class gives them any advantage In the circumstances that come up in this first contest, you must find the dungeon, the prize of which is the honor of going into the dungeon first. All this, I can give <laughs> the fighter, although only because of his secret powers that he's not revealed yet, a plus two bonus. Because of his secret allows him to sense evil. i will have to see if he wants to reveal what that is later. And our paladin can not only resent evil, but also Mm -hmm. she knows the tracks of the wilderness. So she's going to get a plus four for this. I'm afraid artificers get nothing because they can't find stuff. (gasps) You need to get inside before you get your bonuses. But I promise you that the total bonuses received throughout the adventure will be equal. So yours will just come later.
0: Really making it appeal to the new
2: guy.
1: Look, you got to learn. Okay.
4: Just watch and learn. Observe some people using their powers first before you try yours.
1: (gasps) Okay. I mean, I don't even need to roll. I'll go first, head first into the dungeon.
4: You gotta find it.
1: Well, wait. Oh yeah, I need to locate it. Roll plus four. I'm gonna need that because I rolled a three. <laughs> I think I'm distracted by all of the really nice lanterns in the tavern, and. Uh, <laughs> And I've enjoyed a magical tipple.
2: One too many dwarven eels. <laughs> this,
0: this is the person that wanted to get this in under an
2: hour. Well, you're also you're also <laughs> delaying. Give us your d20 then, Craig. Okay, yeah,
1: but now that we're playing...
0: Sure.
2: Eight. Nice. I might also be a bit drunk then. Uh, we might have to rely on hubris here to find it. That is oh. a 16, including the bonus.
1: I'm going to roll again because I have a re-roll for things
2: I don't like. <laughs> this is, by the way, oh. uh, fellow listeners, that point where somebody around the table tries to cheat. and We were going on an honour system in honor no, thieves, but
1: I, definitely,
2: that's been breached I already.
1: definitely have a thing. She's rolled
2: <laughs> low single digits four times in a row.
1: <laughs> I, I just rolled a 12.
2: Unfortunately, by oh. the time your drunken stupor re- uh, relaxes and you can actually see what you're doing. I'm afraid Hubris has already found the dungeon, which means oh, that Hubris it. gets to Let's enter work. first.
1: I rolled a crit eventually. Think of all the fortune and glory <laughs>
0: inside. Think of that spike pit that's one step in that you fall into, oh. perhaps.
1: Oh, do a check. Do... um.
2: So also, dear listeners, by the way, there is often somebody around the gaming table that might attempt to hog the situate the limelight a little too much. <laughs> and we might have identified who that is. So I am going to have to break that and go back to Hubris and say, Hubris finds the dungeon first. He is the first one across the threshold. <laughs> and therefore, he wins the prize of being able to tell us his thoughts first can you tell us please what were your thoughts spoiler free on honor amongst thieves
4: I went in with low expectations I'd heard a little bit about the movie and being a regular player I thought this is going to be accessible to me I heard that it was you know, it had tons and tons of references I wondered if it was going to be accessible to to non-players but I'd also heard that there was quite a lot of comedy in it and that was giving me sort of a bit of apprehension going in because comedy can be quite hit and miss and so I was concerned about what that comedy would be like but I was pleasantly surprised that for the most part across the board it jibed with me it got my sense of humor or I got its sense of humor I really enjoyed all of the all the settings and all the references and the kind of the, the, the way that the the story played out a bit like a campaign I wasn't entirely sure if it was going to be uh, representing players and characters or if it was all going to be in world but yeah pleasantly surprised by the by the way, it all kind of played out and had a really good time. I was, I we both watched together, mm-hmm. Hibiscus and I. And yeah, we we had to go to the pub afterwards to, to have a drink and to discuss oh, yeah. because it was because we were both so surprised by how much we'd enjoyed it. And I wonder if that is just because of the lowered expectations going in. But yeah, maybe it was because despite the, it's got all of the IP kind of connection, I think it was nice to just be in, something a bit different to what we're used to seeing in the cinema recently. I might be coming back to this in years to come when we've had umpteen sequels and I'm like, I don't want to see any more of the, of this
2: Sword Coast. But yeah, I, I had a really good time. Would you actually watch some of the TV series and so on that they reckon they're going to bring out on, on the back of this? See, that's where you start to lose me. Right.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I like a one-shot adventure. Yeah, I like enough. these one-offs. Yeah. And then, yeah, maybe when it gets too deep, too much lore, which is which is risky with D and D because there's obviously so much that you can pull from. Yeah, I I get concerned when you when you have to keep yeah. up and when you have to kind of watch so much TV to to
2: follow along. But you did say you thought it brought the gaming table to life, though. Yeah,
4: and I'd I'd heard a little bit, not not kind of spoilerific or anything, but I'd heard that you could you could tell when characters who should be good at something had maybe rolled a a fail or you know had 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 a low roll or. And I think that the way they pulled that off in-universe was was tied up with the comedy and was pretty funny. So, yeah, I could, you, I could see it. I could imagine this playing out as a, as a campaign that I might be playing in.
2: Okay, well, for that and for your excellent dice rolling, I can also tell you that you have received a plus-two bonus for the boss fight at the end of this because you have gained insights into the boss's mind. There is actually a villain at the end of this podcast, and if anybody can guess who it is as they go, and I think Craig should be able to guess by now, um, then they'll get a free hit on it anyway. <laughs> but yes, you have seen, by fighting through the wilderness, that the boss who built this dungeon placed it boldly on the landscape, crushing all that came before, as if it was totally unimportant. Mm. I say At the very least, I'll give you a bonus, but we'll move on for now. You said you went to see this with... Hibiscus, who may be out of her junk and stupor by now and can tell us what she thought, spoiler free.
1: I really enjoyed it, I have to say. So I've not played d for a wee while, but I've been aware of Gus playing and stuff and I haven't seen the original movie, which maybe we'll talk about as well.
2: Good, don't see it.
1: And yeah. <laughs> Although I am tempted, just no. out of curiosity, but Gus has said it. it's slightly it. different. I really enjoyed it and I thought the style of it, I thought... So much of it just landed so well, so perfectly, actually, that, like, I want to go and see it again. Like, I don't know how I'll feel on another visit. I don't know if I was just really pleasantly surprised because we really weren't sure what to expect. And the trailer sort of had me wonder a few things about it and I was really happy to see sort of how those scenes played out because I think it would have been quite easy to have ruined this They could have easily made it a bit too much, Mm. which we can talk about a bit more.
2: Did are any of the talking points that forced you into the pub because you were so excited about them? Can Mm. you can you give us a hint of what Mm. they are that was so good?
1: Mm. Maybe not so much. Really, without being spoiler, like without the spoilers. No, that's fine. It was. I think yeah. I think style-wise, I just really wanted to talk about the style. I wanted to talk about the humour level, and we
4: just came out feeling quite energised, and like we needed a walk home talking about it wouldn't Mm. be wouldn't be enough. We needed to have a dwarven ale to go. We did,
1: and we did, and and that was also really good. But I just was like, it's been a while. I think since I've had a film where, like, I've left the cinema and gone, oh, I think I yeah. need to go and have a drink and talk about this. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, while it's still fresh in your head... and Well,
2: that's high praise enough by itself, to be honest. It, it, I've, yeah. I might also praise it so much, yeah. I saw it three times in the end, but Are you oh, cool. potentially, like you, I'm not sure if that's because I was so disappointed with everything else that was playing at the time,
3: mm.
2: and I'm, I'm lost with some of the other franchises whether I thought it was good or not. I say maybe I will watch the TV series when yeah. they come up, but yeah, as somebody who's not necessarily into geek humour, I still found it fun and enjoyable. So, strange yeah. one. Um, did it hit four for four? We can come to Craig, the Antipater. How about yourself?
0: Yeah, I really enjoyed it. The thing about it was I had no expectations, really, because I don't know anything about D&D. So the first thing I was looking for was for it to, for it to be accessible. And it certainly does that. It just tells a, a very, not simple, but it tells a very easy to follow story that can draw anybody in. You'll be able to understand what's going on, who needs to achieve what and how they need to achieve it. And then they set off and do it. And I think it stands out in the current blockbuster landscape because they do things like use practical sets. There's some practical effects work in there. There's storytelling that is clearly been thought through. There's All these things that we should be taking for granted in blockbuster filmmaking that have kind of fallen by the wayside. So something comes along and does a lot of those things. It's like you said, it really stands out because it's because it's different. It's doing something that other things aren't. So maybe in a better blockbuster landscape, it wouldn't stand out as much, but things are the way they are. So it does. And yeah, and it was really good fun. I really enjoyed myself
2: A yeah. Screen Junkies said When you actually see somebody writing Competent stories now Because of the dearth they're elsewhere It's like looking on the face of God
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: You must find that <laughs> quote It is a good one That's amazing But we are now safely inside the dungeon I think with enough energy And want to talk about some of the real details So I think we should slam the door shut Which is our spoiler alert And having heard that, we will move boldly forwards into navigating this labyrinth in which you find yourself. Your next contest then is to find your way through the maze of possible discussions the prize of which is to choose our first talking point. I'm afraid I must ask you to bring out your items, your weapons, and your swords to help you get through this with another d20 roll. This one is a straight plus two for everybody, as the Artificer knows mm. well how to construct a labyrinth. The fighters are excellent at bashing through doors, and let's face it, a ranger is never lost. Can you tell me your d20 rolls, please? What well, roll?
1: a
4: dirty 20 oh.
1: and that's a dirty 15 <laughs> I got one
3: oh, <laughs> excellent.
1: Woo-hoo.
2: I think unfortunately then Hubris is really leading the way with his expertise as he receives a further plus mm-hmm. to baroness for really getting the measure of this dungeon can you tell us here gathered how does Hubris find his way through a labyrinth brute force basically
4: bashing every possible wall looking for a hidden <laughs> hidden doors
2: or uh, or switches to, to open up new pathways. Very nice. And in doing so, you manage to see through the boss's misdirections that stop people thinking about the problems with building dungeons and how stories and dungeons are constructed. You have discovered that they like to use shiny baubles to get people not to look behind the curtain. But that doesn't stop you. You smash through the curtain. Behind which I ask you what is our first talking point? what is the most important thing in terms of the use of d and d in film here could be about how d and d came alive for you it could be your suspension of disbelief. can you tell us what you find behind that first curtain i because I think because the
4: the the humor and the storytelling fit what my expectation of playing a game of D&D was like. I think that's what really put me into it and I know that we've got some some talking points around the language or the the humor and how that kind of fits in. And I think that, you know, we're in, when you're telling a DD and d story but not showing the players because they're a very important part of the oh. game. This is almost like we're we're a layer down and we're just seeing what is being controlled by player characters and I, th- I really enjoyed that aspect of the film so any any sort of use of modern language or colloquialism or or any kind of references like that that would normally take you out of a a genre movie i felt like you could get away with it and you could just have all of that in there because it's as if you're hearing what the players are saying and quite often in, in games that i play you know you try and play the character as much as possible, but. For the sake of a joke, yeah. or for the sake of a a moment, you like to throw in something, a reference, or a or a line that would never fit in that game, um, and I think that that just worked really well for me. Watching it, I you know, I had a smile on my face any uh, during any of those moments.
2: That's cool. Does does Hibiscus agree with that? Would you say it did bring your even if it was called Cthulhu, which I is about a pretty dark mm. game, but normally mm-hmm. people play it still mm-hmm. with a few comedy elements, even if it's dark humor. Does it did it bring your play experience to life in in the comedy?
1: Yeah, but I have to be honest. I think, like I said, I think a lot of my observations of it recently have, and maybe in the last three years, have been have been Gus playing it and hearing his characters and hearing how he plays. And because you play with a group of our friends, so hearing how they play, I, I don't know. I think going into the movie, I just thought they've hit it like right where they needed to hit it because it felt so familiar in like a really good way and I yeah I think a lot of the sort of humor and it just felt like like I knew that you'd be looking at it like and judging it maybe a little bit more critically than me but I think i was sort of every time Chris Pine's character was like behaving a particular way I think I was looking at Gus like that's you. <laughs> that's if
2: they'd have gone full Tolkien speak And gone high fantasy
3: mm.
1: Would
2: you have found it yeah. as watchable Or would that have ruined it for you?
1: I think I would have watched it But I don't think it would have had the same hit And I think it's because that's not how mm. people play D&D I think that some people might play it like that But I think how it's been written How they've portrayed it It was one of those things where it felt like it must have been very carefully constructed, but it didn't come off like that. Like I wasn't watching it thinking, Oh wow, people must have really thought so hard about X, Y, and Z in this film. You just have that impression. There are so many people who love oh. this game that I don't think they could make it. Shit. <laughs> yeah. I do wonder
4: if if there are people who who stick very sort of rigidly to a particular setting or tone hmm. that maybe this wouldn't appeal to them and Maybe it's maybe it's like the majority of people. This is kind of how they play, but mm. I could see it not appealing to people if that's if that's really not what you go for. If you if you try and play it more seriously, or if you try and affect that more kind of high fantasy
2: feel. Yeah, yeah. I think most sessions of D and D I've sat at nowadays, especially thanks to the influences coming out through Critical Role on YouTube and so on. I definitely, even if they do mm. put in the theatrical speech. It still mm-hmm. breaks down to a, yeah. essentially a, a knob gag or something somewhere. It's always going to come out, you know. <laughs> so it, yeah. it mm-hmm. I would agree. It did. It did hit the average gaming table pretty well. And I, I think I personally want to see more high fantasy on TV. But I would have said it would have been absolutely wrong to do it. Potentially, most of the high fantasy players, yeah, who are still gaming, have moved off D and D onto other things now. Mm-hmm. Anyway,
1: mm-hmm. see, I just. I don't know if, like, I'm sure there's a space for it for sure, but I feel like when it's a game that's bridging people now to particular settings or particular things, I don't know if you can, I don't know, I just wouldn't want it to be high fantasy, I think. No. I hadn't really thought about it until reading the agenda and stuff, but I don't know if I we'd want that. I think it's like a whole other thing and I think we've got other things that provide that for us we don't need it to be D&D Like, yes. we do have Lord of the Rings we've got other <laughs> other things that provide that Game of Thrones yeah, <laughs> yeah, like sure but like, I I just yeah. don't think we need to get that from no, D&D, or we didn't need it in this movie maybe if even
0: the... Lord of the Rings doesn't go full Tolkien speak no,
1: but they anyway, do, they... like
0: it's more than this, yeah, but mm. it's but it's not to the extent it is in the books because I guess they wanted it to be mass market accessible, mm-hmm. so the so they talk at a level that you can understand rather than the the type of language that he would use in the books. So I think there's possibly a a, a desire to make these things marketable to mm. whoever wants to watch them, and that that means diluting that speech at best and. Mm-hmm. You know, and completely removing it at worst slash even better. I mean, they, whatever way you want to look at it. I mean,
1: they do talk elfish though. Like they have yeah, they have that. There's a lot of things. I don't know. I think if that's what you want, I don't know. There's
2: potentially three layers to this language. There's LA speech, Tolkien speech, and then there's one in the middle, which is an a fifty or or a seventy year old British speech that isn't quite period, but doesn't have any slang in it. It's Mm. still a proper English. Yeah, that's your middle ground. And that's
0: the Lord of the Rings movies, isn't it, really? That middle ground.
2: Yeah. Mm. Well, let's take this to Craig a bit more then. So as somebody who didn't play, you are not going to feel like it enacted the group of gaming that you're used to. But did you find that this L.A. speech comedy allowed you to enjoy the heartfelt story that was in the background. They were trying to pluck at your heartstrings. Is that possible? Was that possible for you, given the comedy and the LA speech they were bringing in?
0: Yeah, I found it was an easy inroad, actually. I remember when we talked about the trailers over various news podcasts, I mentioned at least once that the fantasy setting with the modern speech could be a bit distracting, but I didn't find that at all. I found it, it sucked me in pretty well. So, yeah, I didn't have an issue with that at all, and... In terms of just Easter eggs and things, it's rare for me to be on the other mm. side of that, <laughs> looking in, where I, where I have no idea what I'm looking for in terms of Easter eggs. So for me, I was looking at it being distracting or not. So any of the references that people were, you know, having a little chuckle at near me when they were watching it that I didn't get, I didn't find them, they were getting in the way of what I was watching. Because sometimes you watch something and it's just so loaded with Easter eggs, looking at you, Star Trek Picard season three, <laughs> that you, it takes away from what you're watching. They're purposely pointing at this thing and saying, look at this, remember this? This is important. Look at it. You remember this. But I don't think feel like this film does it. It sort of puts it as the texture of its world and you either recognize it or you don't. And if you don't recognize it, it what doesn't about some
2: of the act as a barrier to entry. References to spells and abilities that are in there, such as the rather strange speak with dead spell in which you can only ask a certain number of questions. Did did that bother you, or did when they made a joke of it, was that enough to cover it over?
0: Yeah, it didn't bother me because they explained everything that needed to be explained in terms of how it works, and they did the classic way of at least one character doesn't know what this does, so someone needs to explain it to them
3: mm. it,
0: instead of a bunch of people that all know this information tell each other this information. I always hate that, but if you build in at least one character who says, "What's that? I've never encountered this before," then they say, "Oh, it's this thing. You know, you can do this." They, they, that particular spell had me wondering, actually, could you, in theory, keep someone alive indefinitely as long as you never ask them five questions? There must be some weirdo that has their ex-wife or whatever locked in a basement just not asking them questions.
2: Right. You're in da- you're encountering very dangerous territory here at the moment, because if there's even one rules lawyer in the audience, they could give you a 15-page description of what's going on, of what could and couldn't happen. I can potentially take a shortcut on that right now to say that most <laughs> spells usually have a a, a a time that they are active for. I've not looked this up, and I have no intention of doing that for this particular podcast, but mm-hmm. D&D doesn't have a mm-hmm. hard magic system. And I, I might even ask that as a question to the to the group, in fact, seeing as it's come up. There's hard magic and soft magic, whereby you hard magic, you need to know the rules and it has to remain consistent, or or it suddenly doesn't make sense anymore. It's almost like science. And then there's soft magic. This magic was potentially created millennia ago. Nobody really understands it. Yes, it's technically using something massively powerful just to keep some undead guy um, talking. But we can't access that part of it. And it somehow seems weirdly inconsistent, but it's consistent because it's a bit odd. And for some people... That weird magic really rubs them up the wrong way. They need the rules. So I do wonder: Did anybody look at this fantasy magic and think, "Hang on, how can that be more powerful than that?" When that's really obviously accessing the bowers of space and time, or or was it? Is it? You know, are you so into gaming?
3: <laughs>
2: no, I, I might as well come to Hubris first, I guess, because he's the he's got the experience. I.
4: I enjoy the sort of homebrew aspect of, of when we campaign, and I, of course, there have to be rules, and, and there's you know sometimes we have to stop mm. and kind of check right what's the what the distance of this spell or what is the what's the area of effect and that sort of thing, and that's fine because you, that you need that to be able to kind of operate as part of the game, but I also I enjoy the aspect of our games when if something makes narrative sense or if it if it can be explained somehow then. We'll go with it, and we're not, you know, sticklers for rules in that way. And, and I, I like, I like it to be more free flowing and to allow a, a sort of combined player-driven narrative that we can all kind of enjoy together. So, not, so that sort of thing doesn't bother me at all. I usually play martial characters, and I like doing that because I, I like everyone else to be kind of having to keep track of all their spell slots and things like that. I don't usually engage with that, and that kind of takes me out when I'm playing the game because I like to play the character and think about the things that I can do. I know that a lot of players that I play with enjoy the, the far more sort of fantastical things that, they're, that these magic users can do. And I think it's quite funny to play someone who's a non-magic user surrounded by people who've got all these fantastic skills <laughs> some people might think that that's kind of unimaginative to be mm-hmm. kind of quite a boring character in a fantastic world but i th- i find that th- i find that easier to identify with because i am a i'm not a magic user despite my best efforts in the real world so yeah that's that's kind of my take on it is that i i personally because i don't play magic characters often i don't have a problem with any of that and i enjoy oh. the sort of the thrust of the story being able to kind of carry the magic.
0: None of those spells and so on were designed to solve the plot in any way as well. It was all character decisions that moved things forward and those were sort of a backdrop to it. So the fact is the rules don't necessarily matter as much.
2: Yeah, and I think that's something that a a good GM potentially as well as a good film writer is going to be able to capitalise on is the plot standing up front enough. So arguably they did something good here that um, a good game would have too. Maybe it doesn't isn't it, it seem bad because they just did it well, which is another selling point for the film. I've got a different question, though, for the other tier. I don't know what order I want to ask it in there, but I'm going to steal something from another part of the dungeon and bring it forward here. Speaking of things d d is known for, as well as its strong rule set, it's also known for being a combat-centered game, which kind of needs to, which means that this needs to be a combat-centred film. I guess I might come to Craig first, and I'll ask Hibiscus as well, but Craig first, did it bother you that this was a combat-centred film, or did you not find it so? Was that hidden well enough?
0: No, not really. I, I wouldn't say it was necessarily combat-based. There was a lot of set pieces in it, but it, there was very few one-on-one fight-type scenarios. There was a lot of People running around doing different things. Even the arena, which it built up to, wasn't really a scrap. It was a series of things they had to overcome. So, yeah, the, I guess it depends on how you define combat, I suppose. But, no, I think it all fit naturally into itself.
2: I might just pass that one straight over to Hibiscus as well, actually. Did, did Hibiscus, did you notice that any of the action was getting in the way of that heartfelt plot that was in the background or did it blend well enough
1: no i thought it was really good i'm i'm kind of glad at the balance that they had because i think that one uh, yeah like leaning more towards one or the other you know it might have just detracted a little bit from the other things i don't know i feel like again i rarely say this on podcasts when it comes to i think Talking about films that we've seen because I feel like I always remember certain elements, and then when we get into it, I'm like, oh, actually, maybe I didn't enjoy it as much as I remember. But I think they hit it really well. I, again, that I think it was enough. They didn't overplay it. It sort of. There were a few things which kind of frustrated me a little bit, but that's just because I'm talking about specifically when the daughter is with Hugh Grant's character and she's got that key, like she's got that stone, that makes her invisible. And she could have hung around to hear Hugh Grant talk to her dad. Um, <laughs> instead of just leaving everything that he said, which I thought that she might have done, instead she just goes to her room and I'm like, what are you doing? You could have just creeped and heard a little bit more and then heard about how like your dad's getting absolutely played. And that was frustrating, but that's like that was just me having that moment <laughs> of thinking that she could have done that. But
2: I'm going to take that down here and I'm going to ask the other two about that in the, in the next section, actually, because... We will want to talk about the heroes, but it didn't. That didn't. That was definitely a plot thing. Then that wasn't a problem with D D that forced it yeah. to be that way. No, yeah, which is fine. I think I will finish this labyrinth then, with the final wall being kicked down by hubris to reveal a question for Craig, who is the one person that doesn't play. Did this in any way inspire you to get more involved with D and D, even playing?
0: No, not really. I'm happy keeping my distance watching the film and possible TV series. Maybe it would be fun to do a podcast campaign at some point. I don't know. But I haven't decided to go out and buy a starter set or whatever you can buy. It's just, it was a film I really enjoyed. And that's basically my connection to
2: it. I'm going to say that I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing either. Because if they'd have put too much product placement in it, as you're thinking that the owners of D&D might want, given their recent comments on the monetization of D&D, then it might have ruined it, actually. If it had been too much about trying to get us to play the game, I think it would have ruined the film. So I understand the benefits of selling D&D, but I'm actually really glad that it didn't do that and it didn't inspire you. For Sounds a bit strange to say it that way, but nonetheless, it, I, think, yeah, I think it would have ruined the film <laughs> if they'd have pushed too heavily into it.
0: It is quite rare for me to come out of something and want to know everything about it, to be fair. So that's a separate thing. It's it's possibly a me thing rather than the film thing, you know, general audience thing. Could be.
2: People do like their lore, but I'm not sure anybody here has a real connection to the Forgotten Realms to really pick that apart. So maybe we'll leave that for a future dungeon adventure and move on here, because you have successfully navigated the dungeon, Which means you get to do what all good adventurers want to do, loot the dungeon. And therefore, we are talking about who is going to be the best at finding the treasure, potentially elbowing their mates out of the way to get first pick of the treasure. Depends how nice you are. So I'm going to do the d20 roll here, where the artificer gets a plus two because he's got magic to help him locate treasure. And... The unknown factor that is Hubis's extra part of his soul, he's not mentioned yet, is going to give him plus four to this. Might be something about dark desires going on there, but if he doesn't want to reveal it yet, <laughs> then we're just going to have to allude to him being, he might have a dark part to him.
1: Did Hubris send you a message with all these no, things he just
2: it? He just didn't declare his multi-classing at the start, so I think he wants to keep part of his um, backstory private, that's all. But maybe the paladin might want to beat it out of him later. Uh, Unfortunately, though, I am going to rule that the paladin gets plus zero to this because paladins let others go first. They're nice.
1: Good thing I'm a paladin ranger.
2: Yeah, well, (laughs) you've had your big bonus. I'm afraid it's somebody else's big bonus time. (laughs) So, yeah, plus two to Craig, plus four to Hubris. Tell me. Hubris, what did you get? I only rolled a 12. He rolled a 12. That will bring him up to a 16, though. Did Hibiscus beat that? No, I got... What did I get? 13? Oh, not too far off. In that case, we'll have to ask, Craig, can you stop Hubris, who seems rather aptly named now, from taking all of the glory?
0: (laughs) I got a 17.
3: Nice.
2: With a plus two taking you to 19, in which case the Artificer wins the first pick of the treasure. I would like, Craig, for you to tell me, how is it that you beat a fighter with a dark past and a ranger paladin to the treasure?
0: Basically, what I would do is I would just go around and open everything, hoping that there's something to loot my RPG video gaming tactics.
1: I think you ruled so high because we bestowed upon you the gift of benevolence. I
2: don't know what that means. Well, you you gifted him with the power of your benevolence, I suppose. (laughs) Yeah. Okay.
1: I needed a word that sounded cool, and I don't know any others. <laughs> Fair enough. It
2: was definitely on par for a paladin. I think there's a possibility here that you've noticed the dark part of Hubris's soul, and you were far too busy trying to work out if he's evil or not, that the Artisva had lots of time to check all the boxes.
0: Yep, all the boxes, all the pots, all the anything that there is.
2: In doing such, I can say that you've also learned something about the boss then. This boss is somebody that thinks the look and layout of the dungeon is far more important than anyone or anything inside it. Or in fact, anything that lies around it. In fact, no, they don't yeah. even care what takes damage when they build the dungeon that is important to them. So you have got a plus two bonus against the boss for that. And I'm really hoping that you can guess who the end of dungeon boss is actually, Craig. I don't know I if i have already got it. You. Yeah. You've already got it. That's fair enough. Um, <laughs> We'll, uh, we'll leave that a bit later. It's just good, bit good for
0: the level one to have some... Let's have a leg up in this
2: one. Yeah. Because otherwise I'll be killed very quickly. I
1: have no idea what's going on. Good. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, so, Well, paladins sometimes get that low intelligence stat. You don't need to worry about it, though. So. It's
1: fine. I'll just put a glamour on and make everyone think that I'm smart mm-hmm. but without actually having to be...
2: I can reveal, though, that Craig has got a lot of help on this, because let's just say he's played in my games before, by which I mean podcasts, and I moan about this thing all the time, so (laughs) if he can't get it, I don't know he could. If
0: you were going to turn it into a drinking game, you would not survive listening to would Not.
2: Yeah, that does mean, though, that you have got the first pick of the treasure. Now, the treasures of Honor Amongst Thieves are the heroes, so I would like you to pick... A hero to discuss, please, Craig. Which is your which is your favourite hero, or which is the one you just most want to talk about?
0: I'm going to go with Doric. I really liked Doric. Maybe the shape shifting. I always enjoy a bit of shape shifting. So that's a it's yeah, a character I really liked. I liked how she already had a bit of a an agenda going in. She knew. what she stood for and sort of went along with the party because they suited her interests at that point they needed her for something she thought she could use them for something so a bit of a perfect pairing it's a it's a classic reason for people to help people in these types of stories so yeah i thought she was really good i liked her sarcastic attitude throughout constantly um jibing at simon for his uselessness when it came to magic
2: Yeah, I thought she was a really good character Do you find her having a good character arc That she she got the development that worked for you, pleasing to watch?
0: Yeah, well she started off thinking that she wasn't into humans And then she ended it by saying, yeah, some of them are all right." So that's an arc of sorts But I think it's more she had an objective And the arc was secondary to her objective And
2: she achieved her objective Give me a standout moment then that was the best thing for you
0: the one where she turned into different creatures in order to escape. That
2: was really cool. Yeah.
0: Ending on a deer, which was hilarious because it was a nice callback to something we
2: said earlier. So we, we can talk about later on things like the special effects and and certainly the callbacks or the structure. Was Was she used, though, well in that? Do you think that was just a bonus that was added on? Or did you find that she was a bit of a plot device in that sense?
0: No, I found it was fitting. They deployed her where they needed to deploy her, and I liked how they brought in different uses for her. For example, in the arena where she had the magic suppressant cuff thing, that got removed, and then they got her out of the. She was the one that got everybody out of the acid jelly. I don't know what else to call it. That stuff. So I think yeah, she had her uses. It was obviously the the world was built around her having her uses in those specific points, but. I, but at no point did I think, oh, there's no way she could have done that or she couldn't do that earlier. I felt like it was pretty consistent.
2: Just in case we want to call ourselves the technically accurate podcast, I will say Gelatinous Cube, but then I'll move on. <laughs> so we don't have to lose any more time to that. Fair enough. I will now ask, I think, Hibiscus to pick for me a character mm-hmm. that she loved or hated, I suppose, but wants to talk about.
1: I'm going to pick Simon. Cool. The... sorcerer who's finding his way with his magic I don't know, was he my favourite? I don't know, I just I really enjoyed him on screen and his character he was really funny, he also had a lot of growth and I thought that he had a sort of level of naivety or I don't know, almost like innocence to him even though he was kind of a thief and I really, I don't know if we're talking more about what happens in the film but the sort of scene where he sort of what's it called? It's not climatizing. Bonding with the a helmet. Tuning. A tuning. When he's a tuning with the helmet I just thought played out so well and I just really enjoyed I think every scene he was in. And I and I don't know if I feel sort of like I don't know if I've seen him in anything else other than the quarry that we've oh. just finished playing. Uh, which is like a, like a video game. And he's one of the leads in that and I don't know if it's just because I feel like that was quite a familiar face from this computer game than
2: seeing him in D&D, but
1: it was really, yeah, I really enjoyed his character.
2: Did it bother you that they kept name-dropping Elminster, which might have faded into the background and it was just a name, but was it a thing for you, hmm. or, or yeah, did it just fade away?
1: Well, who's Elminster? Is that, like, his, his um, granddad or something, or, like, a...
2: He's a descendant of the most famous wizard in oh, yeah. all of the Forgotten Realms. And they put that name in a mm. few times for the people that know it to did go, it? oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, I, must be there. Yeah, oh, I know that, yeah. I know that. And I wondered, yeah. did it go in too many times that you thought, why do they keep using this dude's name? Who is it? Or, or did it just fade mm. away?
1: No, I didn't think that. And I don't think it faded away either. I think that because I've just sort of read again to sort of see what the descriptions were for each person. I don't think they used it too many times. It's something that I'm not familiar with, so I needed to hear that name a couple of times, I think. And uh, and they do explain, mm. you know, he has in the course of a tuning, he sort of engages with his descendant, and we get that impression that this person left a huge, mm. humongous legacy. I think, like any other film, when you are developing a backstory for any character, if you have that sort of personality or character present, then it gets explained maybe in a very similar way. I don't think they did anything new with it. I don't think they did anything bad with it. They just they made it known. And for me as an outsider, I guess to that level
2: speaking of not doing things new then it is my role as GM here to challenge the player. Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying I agree with this, but just to bring Mm -hmm. out Devil's Advocate maybe. Mm -hmm. Here's plot arc his development was a very tried and tested Mm -hmm. you just don't believe in yourself and a lot of people have said in the past that they have become tired of that storyline specifically because it's used so much in fantasy and science fiction if not elsewhere did it bother you was it well used despite that oh
1: i thought it was great personally i really i don't know it makes me think of sort of Our classics, I'm just gonna go straight up with like the Wizard of Oz, like that sort of knowing who you are, trusting in yourself. Like it's Mm -hmm. a classic for a reason. It's something that I think people can get behind, it's something that people can identify with. And we're talking about a sorcerer attuning to a magical helmet being kicked out and thrown about by a very powerful magical descendant. But somehow still relatable. Like you can still sort of have the moment of yeah, you've just got to believe in yourself, and I think it's one of those things that they used really well in the movie where you can't help yourself but root for them. You can't help but want them to succeed, and you're scared that they're not going to do that. And that's one of the things I think when we left the movie, I was just kind of like, they did it, <laughs> you know.
0: It's coming from a successful family and feeling like a loser mm. because you're not as successful as your family, isn't it? That's what it. That's essentially mm. what it boils down to.
4: Mm. I think you can get away with it in this setting because, again, it kind of boils down to the the fact that it's like a game people are playing Mm -hmm. and people like, uh, at least in my experience, playing, you know, you try and come up with a backstory for your character and, and you fall back on quite familiar tropes and people like playing through these roles and then you kind of find, okay, I'm going to develop this and take it somewhere else. But I think it, at the very beginning, you, you kind of set your character up and think, right, they're going to be this or they're going to have this kind of uh, motivation. And then it kind of develops from there. And I think that that's why you can get away with it in this particular film. I wonder about, you know, if you were to do many more sequels and
3: mm-hmm.
4: you couldn't kind of keep falling back on on very straightforward character backstories. But for this, I think it works. I think that you can have characters who are quite basic and maybe it's, maybe it's a bit of a cheat to be able to write this this way, but
1: mm.
4: I think that's that's at least how, how I explain it away.
1: Yeah, but it's enjoyable, though. And I also think like we talked about if they were to make another movie. I didn't know about the TV show, but if they were to make another movie, what would we want from it? So we talked about that a little bit. And it was that whole thing of they either go on another quest, another adventure, they make sure that Hugh Grant isn't involved because he's had his time as... bad guy or they go in with like a whole new set of characters you know and then they they just wipe the plate with that and they just like
4: which like my character's (laughs) hidden agenda would not allow because (laughs) i want to see i want to get the most out of these stars that people are now invested in so (laughs) so you know we're establishing a franchise
1: here no
0: Aaron, you talked about how people say they're sick of these believing yourself type plots, but how often have we talked about films or TV shows where characters don't have anywhere to go? They arrive fully formed and they're already amazing at everything. So Mm. it may be basic, but at least they gave them something. They gave them a start point Mm. and an end point. We don't see that very often. And that loops back to our, well, this is just competent character driven storytelling. That's That's what you expect. But it's not what we're getting elsewhere. But we get it yeah. here, so therefore it seems way better by comparison.
1: And I think it's really interesting because, like, they do that with every character. Every character has that like defined point, which again makes me feel like it's like the game where it's each person pushing forward with their own personal arc and then achieving it. It feels like each of the characters got that.
2: Absolutely. I I said at the beginning I. Um devil's advocate. I don't know if I agree with it. And and I I didn't. I do agree with you you all, actually, that each character Mm. did have a simple enough Mm. arc to move through, that it could be done in the time, well used and well done. So there's no harm in using something from before if you do it well. And a party of people as well trying to get all of them through something that fast, that's Mm. really Mm. difficult. And then add on to that, Mm. that they actually Mm. managed to sneak in a... In film, in plot explanation of what attuning is, which is a DND rule, and make it seem interesting rather than in the game, somebody just says, Have you spent enough time to attune to that? <laughs> yes, I have. You can now use it. Okay, what does it do? And it can become quite <laughs> dull if you don't try and add in these elements. So I, I agree with you. I think it was done well, but I'm going to say, even better, they added in a flavor for me who plays the game to bring out something more than I'd seen. So I would agree.
4: Yeah, I think that's a good point. It's a really interesting point that,
2: you know, you think you'd lean a lot on the material and the IP,
4: but really to be able to develop it. And I agree, there's there's aspects of the game that are quite mechanical and are just kind of ticking boxes or whatever to say, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, therefore I get this. And, yeah, to to make that more interesting, we're always looking for ways to improve you know, a, a cart ride from the, from the tavern to the dungeon or, you know, there's got to be ways of embellishing things that are quite, you know, you, you, you set up camp, right? What are you going to do? Same thing I always do, going to sharpen the <laughs> weapons, going to cook a squirrel over the fire. <laughs> uh, you know, with, you, it's always more fun when
2: we can make more out of these scenarios. That's absolutely great. My next point is actually to ask you another question. Can you pick a character for us? Because I think you're the last one to pick. Did it? Who stood out for you? Well,
4: I'm <laughs> glad that I've been left with the item of treasure that I wanted, despite oh. the fact that everyone else got to loot before me. <laughs> rather selfishly I wanted to talk about the main character <laughs> Edgen, played by Chris Pine I really enjoyed him and I think I mentioned already that I play quite a similar character quite a selfish oh, yeah. rogue rather than a bard but I I, <laughs> I think I just really enjoyed seeing that on the big screen it was I mean, it's quite a well-known trope I suppose of a character but I, I just liked being able to see a lot of the sort of exploits and things that I have personally experienced in the game portrayed. I really liked the way he introduced his character. It was like a session zero sort of thing, where he was, you know, he was at the um, parole hearing or whatever, and he had to kind of give his backstory. And I felt like that was like we were all sitting around the table uh, in the tavern, kind of introducing each other for the first time. And I thought that was quite inventive, and, and that kind of from the very start put me in exactly the right place and in the right mood to to feel as if I was embarking on a quest as well. I, I really loved that every time there was there was a a fight or combat you know coming back to your earlier question about combat he i i don't think he picked up a weapon until or even swung a weapon in in anger until he hit somebody with the with his loot right at yes. the end and i really like that because mm-hmm. that's the kind of selfish mm-hmm. approach that my character takes as well i love to avoid <laughs> encounters and let other people do all the heavy lifting and sort of slink away into the background and i just really enjoyed how how they kind of portrayed that as well and how he managed to to Navigate the world and kind of make best use of the resources available to him, be the human resources or material resources, and yeah, I just I I I think as a main character he was really fun and I identified with every time that he he had to uh, he had to give up the loot to to make a daring escape, and then even at the end when he you know he he realizes that he's going to have to shower the the, the city with loot and give away all of the the winnings to the people, it was this kind of, <laughs> sort of heart-wrenching moment for a selfish character who really wants to keep it all for himself. But really, he realises that you know on his journey, this is
2: the right thing for him to do. This is the advantage, of course, of getting an actual actor in who can act and show you that they're disappointed with losing the loot without having to do too much exposition. And mm-hmm. I will say that everybody on the team did seem to me to show off and acting prowess, which is something that can't be said of the original D&D film, which we're not going to mention, <laughs> and we're not going to talk about the main bad guy in that, because good grief. So we'll focus on the positive. There's a few points of those I might pick up on, actually. The, the exposition you mentioned, yeah. I agree. His parole speech is used for plot purpose, and it was funny, loved it. That exposition does have to come back, though, with Zenk, Zink Yendar, the paladin, when they're I telling you about that. the bad guy for Zest Ham. So do you think the writer's skill in the parole scene was used well throughout, or did any of the exposition seem a bit more like exposition for you? A wee bit, and I think that's maybe just because if you're
4: meeting the starting party or you're, you're meeting your characters that you're kicking off with, then you can kind of fold that in and build that in as if you're playing a, a mm. session. I suppose the, a good DM can kind of weave in new characters and new people that you're encountering. And I think that the, the paladin was such a such a fun character that that really worked. And that it again, yeah, it, it just kind of goes to the mechanics of, of the way that a game would work and the way that you as a player would be finding out about this that I can feel like I'm forgiving quite a lot of the way that it all unfolds.
0: Zenk comes in for that purpose as well. The film tells you this is what he's for. He's the guy that knows stuff. He's the guy that can get in places. And then he disappears when he's not needed anymore. So it's he, he's a device as much as anything. He's He's a character that doesn't really have an arc because he arrives fully formed and leaves in mm. the same way that he started, which is, again...
2: In a, straight line? Far. <laughs> yeah. In a
0: straight line he steps over a rock because he can't walk around a rock and things like that. Oh, and, so funny! but but even then, there was shades of depth there because he's a proper alpha male that makes Edgin feel threatened because he's not that kind of alpha male type. So he just keeps trying to put him down and mock him and stuff to make himself feel better. <sighs> I thought that was a really good little back and forth that they had
4: yeah i enjoyed that and i think it again it's it's like um in our campaign in our sessions quite often come up against these boundaries of the game or boundaries of a character who's really there just to give you a bit of exposition or to give you a quest or to give you a hint and in a meta way we quite often like just having fun by kind of pushing at the dm to to say right this is all you know isn't it you know you kind of (laughs) you've got nothing else to say and i've yeah, I enjoy that kind of playfulness with it as well, where you can where you can just kind of poke and, and prod at the at the edges of the game.
2: That's cool. I'd like to pick up a bit more on that one actually before I leave it and talk about the party as a whole, just to bring in the similarities of storytelling and gaming. Because you talked about a good GM and what they can do. And one of the other points that you added on was giving everybody something to do in a combat. So you talked about Edgin having to hit somebody with his loot and your character was trying to do other things in combat. I think that's a real challenge in filmmaking to make sure that every character has something to do, especially at the end when everybody's got to fight somebody. It's like a rule. They have to bring in enough villains so that every hero has got someone to fight. But they didn't do that in this They rather elegantly placed everybody where they needed to be. And then Edgen hits somebody with his loot at the end and gets a joke in. So I appreciated that craft, I think, just to place everybody properly Mm -hmm. and wanted to give mention to it. Before I moved on to the party, which chat can bring in the other characters as as much as we want to. We're not going to leave them Mm -hmm. behind. Although mm-hmm. I did promise...
1: Oh, we can't leave Holger behind?
2: We, we <laughs> won't do that. Although actually I've just realized I did promise I would bring back Hera Davis for Hibiscus to talk about, just in case we missed anything. You said there was a point where you thought potentially she might have behaved out of character by not using her thief skills and invisibility amulet. And I wondered, should she mm. have distrusted good uncle... I can't even remember the character's <laughs> name now, actually. Um, help me out. What's the name of the uncle?
1: Forge oh, the Fitzwilliam.
2: There we go. <laughs> the, the bad, bad guy. Guy. Should, should yeah. she have distrusted Uncle Forge enough to need to spy on him then? Did you think she was breaking character at that point?
1: Well, i well, I'm sure she says that she uses it all the time. Like I think when she does have the initial meeting with her father, I'm sure like he asks her if she still has it and she's I'm sure she says that she still has yeah. it. I'll have to go back and actually go and watch the film again. But it's it's that whole thing of her dad's just turned up. She's had what? How many four years? Is it four years? That he's been away. I mean, she's a young, she's a child. Like her mind has been molded by who's been with her and the only person who's been present. So it's understandable. It's like you know, child abuse. So
4: <laughs> and he was a con man. So he was, yeah, he was used to pulling the wool over to people's eyes,
1: and you know, do all these things. So I mean. I am not. I don't want to be overly harsh because I think that it is believable that she would have just and we've seen it in other things as well, that sort of manipulation and people sort of believing certain things and stuff but I do think that she would have had almost like a little sense as to maybe something's not right here and why would she not want to stay, I mean maybe it's that emotional situation you know, that she wanted to just leave, but I feel like I'd leave and come back invisible. Did
2: it break your immersion so much that you actually didn't enjoy that part of the film, or was it a reflection afterwards?
1: I think it was. I think it was just me, though. I because you can see that a lot of the film would not have happened if she had stuck around and just listened to that sort of to that conversation. But it was one of those things where I thought, yeah, mm. that was a bit frustrating. It pulled me out a little bit, but not enough that. I'm going to hold it against the film.
0: She is a little passive though, isn't she? Because she disappears for quite a lot of the film. She becomes the objective in a lot of ways. No,
1: well, but she's a child, you know, yeah. like,
0: but the, I, I do agree with you. I think they could have done a bit more to show her relationship with Ford to see why mm. she wouldn't, why she would trust him over her father. And stuff. I don't
1: think, yeah, I mean, I think I do disagree with that. I don't think they need to show us that. And I'm actually really glad that they didn't because it's kind of like, it's, Just knowing how much time has passed and knowing how young and moldable she was as a child, I think, is enough.
4: I think for better or worse, D and D sometimes leans a bit more into sort of lighter fantasy or fairy tale, and that Mm -hmm. you maybe get some of these tropes. There's a few more sort of
3: Mm -hmm.
4: princesses and towers or damsels in distress, and I think that they're trying to move away from those sorts of old-fashioned storytelling elements. But I I still think that it is kind of part and parcel of, of it
1: yeah that's what it was reminiscent of actually it was like that sort of tangled situation where Rapunzel and the witch you know she's like oh you can't leave the tower because everything's bad Mm -hmm. and it's like well you believe that because that's what you've been raised with that's what you've grown up with hearing and you know if you're not at that stage where you're ready to like rebel or push back a little bit And, and Kira does get there eventually and we do see that again in the movie so it's fine but It was just one of those things where I thought, oh, she didn't do that, and I would have done that. And I thought that she could have played a slightly bigger part because she could have helped them. But again, they went on the sort of emotional-charged side of things, and that's also fine. It's just, I think...
2: Well, yeah, and if it didn't ruin the whole film for you, then fair fair enough, you'd noticed it. If that's the only thing that was going to stick out as a bad thing, then I might still call it a good film. (laughs) Interesting to hear people say, though, that they... Oh, yeah they thought it's okay to use some of the basics. And somebody said something about, we want to steer clear of certain other things. And I wish I could remember what that was, because I thought, I'm sure, Hubris, you gave me a perfect link into my next question. I'm just going to have to do what all good GMs do, totally improvise (laughs) and pretend I know what I'm doing. But I am going to ask you to comment on, do you think they steer clear of high fancy Tolkien and all of those potential pitfalls on purpose. For example, there are elves and mm-hmm. halflings in the film, mm-hmm. but they're non-player characters. They are not the main party. There are no dwarves to speak of, and everybody's seen The Hobbit, whether you liked it or not, you know about dwarves. And instead, they, they showed the races of D&D, the Arakokra, the Dragonborn, the Tabaxi even. So I'm wondering, and I might come to Craig for this because he's the one who doesn't have a connection to D&D, did you, did you feel like they were trying to move away from Tolkien? I guess
0: I never really thought about it until we put it in the agenda. But, yeah, there is a distinct lack of those things. And it's probably a testament to the film that I didn't think about it while I was watching it. At no point was I sitting oh. thinking, where are the elves? Where are the dwarves? Et it was So I, I guess it, it immersed me in itself enough to not make me worry about that. So it created its world on its own terms and didn't make me wonder where all the talking stuff was. So that's nice. I think I'm going to take that as a win.
2: That's a good thing in and of itself. Mm-hmm. I might have to bend the conversation around then to the people that have played D&D. Mm-hmm. It might be fifth edition picks up more of this, of the more of these species than the others. So I'll have to ask Hubris first. Do you, do you think that these extra species that came in, there, in the Aarakocra, <laughs> suffered from the D&D problem or were they well used? And by that I mean... Sometimes when playing, people have said that these other species are just humans with one emotion emphasised, but otherwise they're all just humans. Or do you think that we actually saw the tiefling was different to the elf, was different to the crocker was different to the human?
4: Yeah, personally, I f- so from playing experience, I tend to we our, my party tends to kind of focus on the sort of core races, and it feels quite sort of traditional fantasy, you know, humans, oh. dwarves, elves orcs, these sorts of things. And and we come across these other species as part of the campaign. It's interesting because I, I didn't think about that really when watching the film and think about that the, the party was a bit too one-sided or that it was a bit too kind of human or human-variant-focused. But a friend of ours who went to see it and does play and likes to play more adventurously or likes to play more, um, he'll pick to create characters from all sorts of races. He was saying, oh, I wish they'd had more of these races represented in the in the main characters mm. which just didn't occur to me at all because it's just, uh, it's not really the way that I play but I don't think from my experience of the film that I felt like the, the other races suffered in a in a like that they were kind of human with a particular emotional characteristic emphasized I did, I wasn't picking that up at all and I wonder if that's maybe just because of my approach and the way that I've played the game, because they're usually NPCs for me, <laughs> uh, which is which, which could be a bad thing because they're they basically NPCs in this film as well. But yeah, it wasn't something that stood out to me. But I'd, when you'd asked it, and it was interesting thinking about our friend that prefers to play the more sort of fantastical races, that it really stood out to him. So that's about as much as I can really kind of yes. comment on it, that yes, it did from
2: one player's perspective. I suppose then that's fine. If it didn't come up as a problem, then it's a good thing. The only thing that potentially they could have done was more world building. So I could go to Hibiscus and say, were you okay with them using physical puppets? And it was they couldn't really do lots with them because they'd gone to, to using the physical props. Or would you have liked to have seen a much more diverse world with more Aarakocras and, and dragons and so forth?
1: Hmm. I think, like, when we'd sat down, maybe it was actually when you'd sent out the um, opportunity to write up a little character for here. I was well, like, why are there no elves? And it was only then, I think, that I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> like, they, there weren't any that I was aware of in the movie. Mm. And and I think we did have a chat with our friend who I think you were talking about that was sort of wanting to see more in the movie. I think we did talk about it and I think it was just kind of like, yeah, more would have been good. But I think when I was watching it, I was just so focused on the party at hand. Like I was just so focused on what they were up to that it was actually okay. And and in terms of like inclusivity, maybe like they included quite a few things which I didn't know about. So I really enjoyed seeing them being on screen and in like talking roles as well. Like who's the judge? then the sort of when they're trying to get paroled. Gary, what's his name? Gordon? <laughs> Jonathan. Is
2: that Jonathan? Jonathan. Yep. Yeah, yeah, I
1: yeah. I and what I liked with that is because, you know, when they are when Chris Pine is wanting to speak to Jonathan and appeal to him on like an empathic on his story, he's waiting on Jonathan and And then I think what I really enjoyed with that is that when Jonathan did arrive it wasn't anything that I was expecting. And it was that hulk that it was that whole thing of like, oh my gosh, like they've got me on that but also it's really nice to see that it's like I don't know that they're including these other characters that aren't human. I don't know, it was like
4: you really like the
2: tabaxi as well, the cat.
1: Yes. Oh the cat, oh, the cat getting her cat back was incredible. <laughs>
2: There's a secret hidden writer's joke in getting a cat out of a fish that I'm afraid I don't know well enough to comment on here, but it's something to look up on the internet. So it's not just cute, it's in there for some clever reason.
1: No, I don't want it to be there for some reason. I just need it to be for... to be cute. I just needed it to be that there are other characters in this world that aren't human and we had a cat getting her kitten back from the fish. (laughs) And that was enough for me. We had the owl bear.
2: Yes, classic D and D reference. Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: yeah. And it was just—I don't know. I feel like they did include all of that, but I think if they were going to start including, like, they could have had maybe a more diverse party in terms of what they were. But then, what is he? He's like a what was Chris Pine? A uh, Harper. Well, that's, that's not a, human, that, is that's it? That's
4: a faction. He's a, that's a faction he's part of. Yeah. Oh, okay. Political. Well, I wonder if it was just a, a, a way of making it more relatable, having human or human-ish characters mm. as the as the main characters.
1: Because maybe Guardians of the Galaxy? I think the fact
0: that the cast is diverse helps it a bit as well. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just a party yeah. of white people.
2: It's funny you bring up diversity then, because that's, that's sneakily where I was evilly headed. And for two reasons. One, because the creators of D&D have had a lot of trouble with what we can refer to as race issues, and and hence the move to the word species, is is on purpose. But I think I would have said they handled that reasonably well in the film. They put the the physical puppets in where they could, and you you couldn't have a tab- Tabaxi main character without going into the computer special effects and graphics, and I I would have hated that. So. To give us a tiefling and and a half-elf and so on allowed you to have characters that didn't need a lot of special effects. So, Mm. as Craig says, they got diversity in, and I didn't need species diversity myself in order to get some sort of benefit in, in that way. But there's another diversity issue, or rather culture war issue, that came up at one point. I do want to bring up for the... Can I say pleasure? Probably not. But I'm going to do it anyway, which is that the writers said actively (laughs) during the creation of the male characters, they wanted to emasculate them. They wanted the female characters to stand out more on the front lines of battle and that they didn't believe that was possible without emasculating the male characters. In fact, they said that they, they prefer to emasculate their male characters because it challenges them to be more heroic. And this caused, Mm. as you can imagine, the internet to explode in left versus right and men versus women and and everybody just went for each other. So I'm going to try and be a bit more specific on my questions and just let it open to the floor. I'd like to ask you specifically, and I don't know who to ask, I might have to just let it be a fight, do you think the female characters needed that support to stand out in this film or would they have stood out if everybody had been a capable fighter,
1: so how did they emasculate the male characters?
0: Yeah, I think the writers used the wrong word there because I wouldn't describe what happens to the male characters in this film as being emasculating.
1: Well, how would like? Yeah, so Aaron, do you have like a sort of thing of how they've been emasculated?
2: So yeah, I'll I'll bring it in. It is sure. GM's job to to detail it. So I can't, I won't speak for them, but I I think I saw that they were saying they didn't want either of the male characters to be capable in a fight, that they had to be protected by their female counterparts. So you've got Doric and Holger can fight, but for the most part, Simon physically can't. And Elgin, he can a little bit, because he does, and I was very pleased to see this, defend himself against the stone dragon. Mm -hmm. But generally speaking, he couldn't fight any of the, the, the main combat bad guys. So... The, the male characters needed physically protected okay. by the way they've written it. Do you think that was in any way a problem? Did the female characters need that? They had to protect mm. the men in order to stand out. Or would they have been able to stand out anyway if yeah. they didn't have to protect their male counterparts?
1: I do think I have a problem with the word emasculate. Because I think that it's more about determined strength or something. I don't really know. But- I feel like they did de- like the characters like so Holga and Doric were gonna stand out no matter what.
3: Uh-huh. I think
1: Holga her character is incredible and I thought Michelle Rodriguez was incredible. And I don't know, it's quite interesting, I think, given who her ex partner was in it, you know, he's like uh what what is he? Is
2: he a halfling? Tiny Bradley Cooper Yeah, he's a halfling But more importantly He's a homemaker He is in a very traditional Conservative Female role of Mm. I am the emotional part of the relationship I'm the one that makes the meals And I Mm. sat up and weep at night Because you were doing dangerous physical things So that was a specific role reversal Yeah
4: That was the only one that I thought was kind of overt I wouldn't have thought that that Simon or Edgin were emasculated as such I think that That the her ex-partner being like that was kind of like flipping it you know on its head and it mm-hmm. it was like an opposites attract sort of thing where she was the heroic one mm-hmm. and he was happy to be at home yeah. and just wanted her to come home
3: mm-hmm.
4: and I don't think that I mean I think that that was played up for comedy maybe but I don't think that the the sort of adventurers were I liked that you know I've already said I like that Edwin was kind of selfish and cowardly and that he's sh- mm-hmm. shy away from a fight because I play a character like that I liked that <laughs> Simon was unsure of himself but kind of came came round in the end. And I don't think that the female characters felt like they had to protect anyone. It just felt like mm-hmm. they were doing what they did because that's Together. who they were.
1: Yeah, and that was like their dynamic. It felt like it just perfectly worked. And I think it's interesting because it's almost I know they had it wasn't a romantic relationship, but Edgin and Holga, you know, were parents to Kira when she came on the scene and it was that whole thing of like I thought they developed a really like a really powerful relationship where you could have two people raising a child one of them's not blood related and they're not in a romantic relationship but they're a family unit and it was really strong and it was really beautiful and I really enjoyed that but like I I don't I don't know I think I didn't view it as oh wow the female Is defending the male or the female is stronger because you see it in nature all the time. It's a really strange narrative that we have as humans that that people have like determined traits or we imagine them to be like homemakers or all of this. But you see it in the natural world all the time. It's something that isn't, it shouldn't be used for comedy, which was the one thing that I wasn't really sure of the movie actually was understanding, I think. Brad the Cooper's character and that sort of thing. It felt like that was maybe a bit too much because I didn't know if they were doing it for comedy or just to
4: I think it paid off when at the end you saw that she had a type.
1: <laughs> yeah. 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 I think yeah, I think it took to that part, but like I don't know, I feel like that's a bit of a strange it's a bit of a strange question.
0: Yeah, to me they all just bring something different to the table. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't make sense that Edgerton and Simon get involved in fisticuffs or whatever. And then you have that role with Zenk anyway, he comes yeah. up and he's the sword and shield guy. He He's great in a fight. Holga? Yeah, well, but, but I mean in terms of the whole emasculation argument, hmm. I think the writers, yeah. when they said that, are using the wrong words, because yeah. that's definitely not what they meant, but Zenk's that role, he's not in it for very long, but he does that, and the, the Holga and Bradley Cooper, I can't remember the character's name, I'll just keep holding on Bradley Cooper, you have that his new partner is also a barbarian, mm-hmm. isn't she? Mm-hmm. Where, so it's the suggestion is that that's just the norm for yeah. these types of people. So it didn't stand out to me as they're doing something deliberate to mm-hmm. pull down the men here. Mm-hmm. It's just that everybody has their place,
1: yeah,
0: and they they fit into that place, yeah.
1: And I think that's how you'd play it as a game as well. Like when you're choosing characters and you're developing your campaign and you're maybe starting up, you discuss, oh, what are you going to be? You wouldn't have three barbarians and then a sorcerer you would have like you would have people who could offer and bring different things and i think when you go doing that sort of stereotypical character route of what each brings to the party to be dynamic enough to cover as many bases as possible then they do that and i,
4: yeah, I think the characters were just being know. who they were and I'm sure we've seen in other films where female characters are kept kind of given a bit more of a hero shot or a you know mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. a, a very specific scene or shot where, where they get to do their thing and get kind of highlighted for, for that instead of having it just woven throughout. And and I think it's more skillful to do it that
2: way. I'd say with some of the arguments before, I'm throwing this out as devil's advocate. And I've got one more question on this before I move on to our final part of the dungeon. But uh, I will just say that I actually thought that this was one of the best instances of modern rebalancing of, of gender roles that I've seen Because so much of Mm -hmm. what we see is all about making sure that it's corrected by swinging things to uh, an equivalent extreme, an opposite extreme. Whereas in this case, I think they actually did do a balance, which was nice. But the emasculation comment, then I will just do one more thing before I move on, which is they explained it by saying, they wanted to make everybody a bit crap.
1: What? Who <laughs> was a bit crap?
2: Well, th- this, is, this is the question then to, to answer this. They 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 thought they said when they created the party that they didn't want any character to just be a bland hero with nowhere to go. Their solution to this was to make each person in the party a bit crap. So Edgin knows that he has done wrong by his wife in some way and his plans don't always work and each character as you go along simon as you've already mentioned is thought to be a bit crap as a sorcerer but eventually is proved not to be so before i move on as i say to the last part of the dungeon do you feel that they did that was everybody equally a bit crap and then proved themselves at the end
0: why didn't the writers just say we solved that by giving every character a character arc like they used to do in films <laughs> like this? Because we discussed that earlier, they did that. Everybody had a place to begin and a place to end up, and there was a progression there. Yes. Yeah. We solved the problem of uh, of not having any of them be brilliant without being challenged by make having them, giving them something to achieve. We employed basic character-driven storytelling. <laughs> Why not just say that? It's it's a bit of a strange thing to say. Maybe they're just not very good at interviews. I think
4: no. I think I can understand where they're coming from on that point because I always think this about D and D as well, where you can you can create a character, you can kind of give them as many skills and powers and abilities as you like, and you, you as you level up, you see your skills increasing, and you think I'm I'm becoming more powerful. I'm getting more more skills, more more abilities, and yet because it relies on the roll of a dice, you can still fail miserably and despite being someone who's super confident and competent, you can still get into situations where everything goes completely wrong. And that's happened to me many times. <laughs> <laughs> and I think relating to that in the film, was it was really funny. And I think that, that that's maybe where I think that they're coming from, is that you you could be you can think you're this well-rounded character, you think you, you're a hero, but you can always roll a mm-hmm. one at some
2: point.
1: Yeah, you're just as good as your last <laughs> actual role. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, that sounds like a reasonable way to end that off then. We thought that it was actually really well done, but the writers aren't necessarily good at selling themselves, but there you go. Yeah.
1: I mean, I get what they're saying, you know.
2: We'll move on to the last part of our dungeon then. This is this is the last part yeah. before the big boss fight, in which Craig will hopefully name the big boss. But yeah, before we get to that, you still have to disarm the boss's final line of defense or evade them, which is the traps in any dungeon. So I need one last D20 roll, people. The Artificer gets plus four on this because mechanisms are your bread and butter. I'm afraid the fighter is going to have to brute force this way through these, so you'll get plus zero. But Paladins have the protection of the party tank, so our Paladin gets plus two. What did our Paladin get?
1: Fourteen with that plus two.
2: Well, that's not bad, though, actually, fourteen. How about our fighter? Mm -hmm. Oh, 17. <sighs> 17, his dark past snicks up again and gives him a bit mm-hmm. of magic to sneak him through. How about artific- artificer though? 15. 15, I'm afraid then. Blast. The glory is definitely going to Hubris, who has, has actually managed to succeed in three of the four contests. we <laughs> go, uh, 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 what can you say? It's like any other
0: game we play on this podcast.
2: I sometimes don't like people what can you say. Um <laughs> how does our fighter with his hidden powers perhaps solve the problem of traps in the dungeon? Well, I'm going to I'm going to confuse
4: my party mates who might think that I would brute force my way through this, but mm. I'm going to I'm going to concentrate and I'm going to try to use perhaps a magical ability to detect these traps. Mm. And, and it, it might not appear to the, the rest of the party that I'm doing anything other than kind of squatting and concentrating. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I can assure you that I'm I'm uh, drawing on some hidden powers to detect these traps and to, to highlight them to myself.
2: And in doing so, you learn a little bit more. The last clue of who the boss fight actually is against is that... Their threats, their weapon, are their ability to just not care about anything but their own goals. They attempt to spread laziness and self-flattery out into the world to try and make everybody think as they do, which gives you your final plus-two bonus
3: for the fight.
2: However, your dark magic, then, lets you pick out these traps, and you get the choice of which trap to defeat. Would you like to defeat the villains of Honor Amongst Thieves? The plot and the ending, or the direction and special effects, which takes your fancy? I'm going to go for the villains. The villains, in that case, on the villains in general, were they credible? Were some better than the others? I've got Forge, William, Sophina, and in theory Zastam, although he wasn't in this, he was potentially a nemesis for a subsequent film, but good, credible villains, Mm -hmm. well used. I think the villains weren't
4: all that interesting, but they kind of did what they needed to do. I think that the the con man that turns on the party that's that's fairly typical and you know as we've spoken about he kind of provides the <laughs> the antagonist to Edgin you know by stealing his daughter away that's a pretty straightforward reason for wanting to get back at him and he steals all the fortune as well so he kind of screws the whole party over and I think that he's the most developed I think that Safina is an interesting looking character I, I like the I like the inclusion of the red wizard. I like the sort of powers and the visualization of all of it. But I don't really think that she had much to to do beyond being this kind of uber evil presence and provide someone for
2: them to beat up at the end. I, I will say that though, I did like the the end fight with her, that they didn't pull the rule of storytelling that everybody has to fight their own bad guy. It's almost like everybody has to receive a mirror to fight against. And in some of these old films, it was so obvious. Yeah. Whereas in this case, they all fought Sophina. Or rather, they did actually manage to make it a bit more interesting with some of her spells. She created the... I should actually be able to name the spell, actually, where she creates a hand, but I can't do it. Like Mage Hand? or It, it could have been. I feel like it was something more like Bigby's Hand. But the anime object on the Statue of the Dragon was, was also pretty good. Brought on... Something that that fought in a completely different way into the mix. So that final fight scene for me was was still interesting. I think even despite yeah, I definitely appreciated
4: that, and that they didn't have kind of an army of uh, putties or you know uh, faceless aliens to to beat up to get to the final boss fight. Uh, yeah, I really like the way that that all played out.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it wasn't too long either.
2: And Forge gets defeated not in a combat. He gets mm. defeated by, well, I mean, arguably his own greed and the fact that the friends learn about him and, and give him what for. So potentially nice, again, that he wasn't just cut to Forge, how he gets defeated, cut back to Sophina. Yeah. So maybe it's what you say. They they were used as they were needed, mm-hmm. And maybe like the main characters, they were simple as they needed to be.
0: I don't think they had as much depth as the main characters, which is often a problem with films that have villains where they mm. largely forget about the villains until they need to punch something at the end. And They do crop up throughout, but you, you don't really know anything about Sophina other than she's an evil wizard And Forge. He's greedy and smarmy. I think Hugh, um, Hugh Grant was doing quite a lot of heavy lifting there to add stuff that the script didn't have.
2: Was that a problem? Did you need the script to have more?
0: No. No, um, it's just, it's, I suppose it's what I've come to expect in films like this, where it's, okay, the villain's going to be a bit rubbish, but we'll just deal with it. But as as long as I'm enjoying the ride and as long as I'm enjoying the main characters, it's not such a huge problem. It's just well, something I notice.
2: Well, maybe they were overshadowed by the ending, the plot a bit. So I'm going to come to Hibiscus.
3: hmm
2: to ask you, did you like the ending about who Kira's mother really was, and how it was built up throughout the, the whole film? Or was it, I felt like they wanted me to cry, but I just couldn't?
1: They may have welled up a tiny a little, bit
2: Oh, that's nice.
1: Because it does pull on the heartstrings. I think it's that thing of recognising and understanding what family can be and what family means. So I think I could see it from a long ways away, how it was going to play out. I knew that it was going to be used on one of the party to to bring them back. And I wasn't sure it was going to be Holga. But I thought it was really beautifully done, actually. And I think that sort of little flashback, it could have gotten to a point where it was really annoying, but they did it where they didn't linger enough in there you know that it became sort of a bit too mishy it was just like enough of a little echo back and I think you know they had moments where they could have brought back Kira's birth mother but it was that whole thing of well it's been a long time and you're going to disrupt her from whatever life she's in now. Yeah. You know, thinking about that. And I thought that's quite a nice way to sort of think about it and to hold on to what you have right beside you. I don't know. I thought it was really beautifully done.
2: (laughs) Yeah, they message that throughout the film. There's the dragonfly motif throughout the whole film that you see with Kira's birth mother at the start. Mm -hmm. Then it carries on as you see Zenk mention what you said. She talked about, Mm -hmm. you know, she's got another afterlife constant flashbacks and then the real big one where in the flashback her, her birth mother says don't try and trap that dragonfly just just yeah. let it go yeah. so they, they're really when you look through it and say mm-hmm. i watched this three times so i was definitely watching it <laughs> on my notepad right. I they, it. they really layer it in so that when you mm-hmm. get to the end you have to let the mother go because they've just yeah. said pretty much throughout yeah. and I I didn't find it too heavy. Do you agree then? You didn't find it too heavy?
1: Not too heavy. And I'm glad that they didn't sort of really, because they had it enough, like present enough through the film that you were aware of it. I I think Gus and I did talk about this, where I don't think they needed the last flashback of the mother by the window. And we were glad that she didn't speak, you know, because it was kind of like, We've already heard it and it was that whole thing of if she says it again and it's just playing that exact same part back, but it kind of progressed a little bit and it just let you fill in the blanks yourself, you know, and take you to that that place. Yeah, I thought they they did it quite well.
4: Yeah, I think that even if it was a bit telegraphed, you as you say, you you knew that this was kind of where it was heading. I still think it was done effectively and as as you've said, Erin, it was kind of sprinkled throughout and it was... It was done in a nice, nice way that I also think it was getting a bit dusty in the, in the back of the cinema. <laughs> <way>. <laughs> yeah,
1: because it was like it was just like a nice sort of, and I think the main bit that had me sort of thinking and feeling a little bit emotional was when they just had the playback of how Holga. Oh, I feel emotional. Yes. <laughs> of how Holga was like really involved in raising her.
2: Well, she was her real mother. She was Kira's actual mother. That's the yeah. That's the reveal. Yeah.
1: yeah. And that was really nice. And I thought they did that really, really well. Um, and it was just kind of like, and that is where Chris Pine's character fully concludes. It's that sort of thing of not being selfish oh. and recognising that he needs to give his daughter what she's asked. And and maybe it's a little bit selfish because, you know, they are really close friends you know like they are family to one another as well so i think it was a beautiful ending that's good i'm glad (laughs) you
2: agree there because this film did something different from most of the marvel and star trek that i've been watching lately doesn't do anymore Mm. they they do remember to put the jokes in i cannot deny Mm. that i see Mm. jokes in a lot of the other franchises but I don't see meaning and purpose behind the storytelling. Mm. And it was so pleasing to me. This is why I saw it three times, I think, because I was starved of this Mm. meaning. So happy to go in and see somebody telling a story with that heart to it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think throughout the film... And I think, and I am going to go and see it again, I think, if I can. It felt like it's like a Disney film. It feels like a real nostalgic Disney film. Mm-hmm. It has those very recognisable villains, it's a very recognisable party of questers. And they're sort of like, we've sort of said like basic quests, I suppose, but that journey that they go on, I don't know, I was thinking of Aladdin, I was thinking of Snow White, I've been thinking of like, so, like I was just thinking about Lion oh. King, like how Forge's character at the end, it's kind of like Scar being devoured by the hyenas at the end yes. of the Lion King, you know, when he sort of handed back and it felt like a lot of the storytelling imagery and narratives have come from a lot of these other fairy tales or stories that a lot of us that are going to see it are really familiar with. And I don't know, I feel like the more I think about that, the more I'm like, it's so understandable why it was enjoyable because it has key parts of other films that we've all enjoyed, but they've presented it in a way that's just
2: really well done. Yeah, the shortcuts aren't offensive. They are just using a language Mm. that we know, which is, as you say, most welcome. Yeah. Now I have got the very last of the talking points in this section for Craig, Mm -hmm. but I you always Mm. get to know what the GM cares about in their game because they make a big deal of it. And so I'm specifically making a big deal of this in a way that I've not done before. I needed to ask all three people about the ending. So, Craig, I do need to ask you about the ending as well. You need to comment on it for me. Hated it, loved it, indifferent?
0: No, I thought it was really good. I think it built up nicely. It was a lesson in grief for Edgen throughout, as in he hears about this tablet that can bring his wife back from the dead, so he obsesses about that. He's in denial about the fact that he's lost her and thinks that all of his problems will be solved if they can get her back. And then how long is it he's in prison? Mm, it's like so. two years, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So that's a long time. And his daughter was a baby when the mother died. So it's pretty clear from early on that the daughter had no, will have no or limited memory of her mother. So you get to this point where throughout the film, different people keep telling him that this quest isn't what you think it is. Zenk tells him about your wife's in another afterlife, don't rob her of that etc etc and then it gets to the point where he has to make the choice when holga dies and comes to the realization of as has been said she is the daughter's real mother and needs to be brought back for that reason and they establish early on that they became like brother and sister so for him it's him getting his sister back as well and it's a much more recent loss so it's not that so much time has passed that then you have to readjust because you can imagine what that dynamic would have been had the mother been brought back. The daughter yes. might think, "I don't know this person. What is going on here?" Then, yeah. So, I think it's a, yeah, I think it's a really meaningful, really heartwarming ending.
2: Well, I'm really pleased to hear that. Go down with uh, complete agreement. But I did advertise that I have one final trap, and I'm afraid we've already discussed quite a lot of this trap. So I'll, I'll have to leave it open to you, Craig, to, to add some stuff in if you want. Which is the. <gasps> The direction, the style of the film, the special effects, the humour, we've, we've covered quite a lot of that already. Is there anything about that part of the film that you think we've missed that we should bring in?
0: One of my notes is about visual storytelling, about how it uses the environment to tell you more about what's going on here. For example, you've got the, I don't know what the political term is, they use it in the film, the Pudgy Dragon. Mm-hmm. And you wonder, why is this dragon so pudgy? And then you see all the skeletons surrounding where the dragons mm-hmm. hold up. And you think, okay, ate all these people. That's why. Yeah. The, the cause and effect type thing of it. And there was a few examples of that where just little bits of the environment were telling you about the world. There was the ostrich cows or whatever. I don't know what they're called. but that speaks Yeah. I don't think the film even tells you what they're called. But no, it doesn't I mean, have to. It's just through context, you know what they're for. Because we know what animals are used for on a farm and that's clearly a farm and so on so I think the the effort that went into the production design and the visual effects are incredible as well the combination of practical and CGI it looks really good everything's so well designed it's really well shot it isn't sepia toned so that you don't see anything great it's just you know it's colorful and vibrant and well designed. It's, it shouldn't be refreshing, but it is.
2: <laughs> so you're telling me that they were capable of doing storytelling without exposition and having somebody do something and then immediately explain it directly afterwards as if we're idiots. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Madness. Who'd have thought that was possible?
0: It's almost like you can trust audiences because cinematic storytelling <laughs> or cinematic language has been a thing that's existed for decades know. that we now just understand.
2: Well, it's, it's a, a good little point then to get on to my final boss fight as you talk about the great evils of failure to use storytelling and so on because you have successfully navigated through my dungeon. Woo-hoo! You have overcome the boss's traps. You have looted the boss's treasure and you have gotten a few clues at each stage as to who the boss might be. But before we open the door to this final boss for you to defeat... I do have to ask if anybody thinks they know what is behind this door. Who is my big bad? Craig, I think you might know, but I'll ask the others. Do either of the others know before I give it to Craig?
1: I have no idea. That's fine. Craig, I'm pretty
2: sure Craig knows it's fine. I just didn't want to steal your thunder. I think we just give it to Craig. Who is who's behind the big the, the, the door, Craig?
0: It is of course the plot force.
2: Oh, it's so evil and horrid and awful. Of course, no. it's the mm-hmm. the great evil that sits in this in this dungeon of just disgusting, cheaty shortcuts. Fortunately, I don't believe you had to fight this thing during Honor Amongst Thieves, but I'm afraid you do have to fight it now. It is the most dastard, the most heinous, the most destructing of all storytelling villains. And I'm gonna ask each of you to inflict a blow upon it. However, Craig, because you knew what was coming, as you wade into the room, you get an automatic success. Can you tell me, please, what damage do you do to the evil plot force that brings it low in some way?
0: I point out how character arcs work (laughs) and how you have to earn development of your characters rather than them just arriving with them already
3: built in.
2: A verbal bruising. It cries out. Under the weight of your argument, it's magics collapsing around it. It's unable to to refute that at all. Unfortunately, I'm afraid the other two are going to have to roll their d20s, though, for this. (laughs) Hubris, you get plus six to your roll, plus your existing (laughs) plus four for your skills. So you're at a d20 plus 10. I need you to get 12 or more in order to inflict a blow. So in fact, could you just not roll a one? That'd be great. Okay, here we go. (laughs) Oh, 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 oh. Oh, we rolled a (laughs) three. I rolled a three. three. I mean, it's not the most convincing of blows, perhaps, but the point is it lands. So can you tell me, what do you do to bring the plot force low? (laughs) Um, I
4: would like to hit the plot force with a tripping blow with
2: my sword. (laughs) Sometimes the best solution is just to get to it and do what needs to be done. A straightforward slice that cleaves away any form of ability that this thing has left. It's still standing, but I'm afraid we need hibiscus to finish it off. So you don't have your bonuses, because I'm afraid everybody else took them, but you get your plus four. Oh no. And if your friend Craig the Artificer would like to help you, he could lend you his bonus that he didn't use.
1: Oh, what? <laughs> Um, Yeah, because I rolled a three Take it, yes (laughs) I'll take all of it because we're a party
2: Take it, he says So you'll get plus six for Craig And plus two, um, sorry, plus four for yourself And plus six for Craig So you're also on plus ten What's your total?
1: Yes, I'm on a thirteen That's teamwork
2: Again, not the most convincing of blows But it's enough, (laughs) it gets through Please, would you tell the audience How do you finish off the plot force Once and for all
1: I dodge and duck and roll under a table and wait for it to all blow over.
2: (laughs) Fair enough. And that does work. The plot (laughs) force is defeated and lies at the floor (laughs) under your feet. You have won, party. You are successful. You are the very party that everybody wishes would come and solve their problems. You have won the chance here Mm
3: -hmm. to
2: give your epilogue. I am going to have to come to the person that first of all took their blow on the plot force, Craig the Artificer. You are no longer a mere innocent first-level character. You have developed. What are you now? And is there anything you would like to tell me about D&D that I've missed
0: would that make me level two, then? Is that where I am? Or-
2: You've probably gained a few more levels throughout the dungeon. You oh. can you cannot edge it on a bit. You'll be fine.
0: Let's, let's assume I'm level six.
2: Oh, fair oh. enough. Oh. Don't That's a too. jump.
0: I don't know how many levels. But don't worry let's about it. See. Yeah, never mind. It doesn't matter. Or maybe it does. I don't know. It doesn't matter. It matters. It matters. Yeah.
2: No, in the epilogue, nothing <laughs> matters. Tell me what's... In the epilogue. <laughs> yeah. Anyway.
0: Okay. Yeah, well, I thought this film was great. Chris Pine solidified as the best of the Hollywood Chrissies, and it's not even close. <laughs> Um, one day I'll tell you what my ranking of the Hollywood Chrissies is, but not today tease that for some other time
1: that's his own podcast perhaps
0: (laughs) (laughs) Hollywood Chrissies, discuss (laughs) Uh, the one thing I would point out that we didn't discuss was the little brain monsters joke I think uh, that still (sighs) makes me laugh every time (laughs) they are drawn to intelligence, they walk past Chris (laughs) Pine says, well that's a little hurtful (laughs) really good, it's very very funny, but um, yeah I think you've about covered it, I think it's Just a really fun time, and like Angus alluded to earlier, let's hope they don't run it into the ground with constant sequels and sidequills and other quills and whatever else (laughs) they decide to do. But I wouldn't mind seeing another go at this as well, perhaps with the same cast, perhaps not. I think there's room out there for just a fun, decent adventure time, and that's what we got here. So great. Like I said, if it was in a better blockbuster landscape, it might not stand out in the way that it does, but because it's surrounded by such half-assed crap, then <laughs> it's way better by comparison. And I think it's a nice breath of fresh air.
2: Jolly good. Oh. Let's come next to Hubris. Can we hear the epilogue of Hubris, please? Well, I think I'd like to reveal
4: that under my straightforward, bold-hearted fighter exterior, you may have seen glimpses of a, a cynical, money-hungry warlock <laughs> showing oh, through. i like to say that, I you know, I, I grabbed for the loot halfway through the dungeon, but I believe that our warm-hearted and loving summary of this movie has brought me back to my senses. I'm feeling far more fighter right now, and I'm feeling back on side. My, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good again. What um, journey you've been on? I think that, yeah, I think that this movie was a lot of fun. I think that uh, one thing I wanted to, to mention were some of the, the puzzles and the the fun kind of storytelling elements there. I really enjoyed. Uh, sort of how they undercut the the complicated way they'd have to get over that bridge, I think, in that <laughs> set piece. That was really fun. Really like the heather and the other stick and the portals and the, the carriage and all of that kind of heist was really inventive and, and made me want to get into a session immediately and start using inventive ways to solve problems and puzzles. Uh, so I think that was
3: mm-hmm.
4: one thing that was really fun about the movie. I think, yeah, as a player, it was it was really accessible. I really enjoyed seeing locations described um, that on reflection I was thinking about it and I was thinking about how when you've played a video game and you and you see a video game movie on screen because you've seen it and because you know exactly what that should look like it can often be disappointing oh. on screen but because a lot of this d d game happens kind of in theatre of the mind all it takes is a, a sort of hint of somewhere that you've been mm-hmm. in a game like a Tribor or like an Nevermoors or Neverwinter and, and it. Came to life because I, I feel like I've been there and I've played through those and I've, I've walked those streets and I've explored mm-hmm. those dungeons. So I, I really enjoyed that aspect of it. That was that was really kind of uh, relatable for me. And I'm glad to hear that, despite uh, or whatever your level of engagement with the game, that it sounds like it's gone over really well with our party. Um, mm-hmm. I I as I'm kind of suppressing my <laughs> warlock side, I'm, I'm really hoping that it doesn't get rung out yeah. for as much um, cash as possible. <laughs> Uh, the cynical part of me thinks that we probably end, will end up that way but uh, I really hope not because I, yeah, I really enjoyed this, had a lot of fun it was a real kind of breath of fresh air a nice surprise and yeah we had to rush to the tavern afterwards to discuss
2: mm-hmm. Yeah uh, re- Resoundings, uh, feel goodwill from that statement alone, yes Hibiscus, mm. you are the last to give us an epilogue please
1: Yeah, Some things that I think we haven't quite covered that I really enjoyed I really enjoyed just how quickly they moved from quest to quest. It felt Mm. so enjoyable and fun. I think a lot of these films tend to dwell in certain places or just be overly long, where you don't care anymore. But it was very, it felt very much like this sort of gameplay where you just quest, you go somewhere, you get the job done, and then you continue on and you quest again. And it kind of it made me think about when we play Gloomhaven. It's very much like a you go. You get something and then you have to go and do the next part on your journey to sort of keep that quest. So I really enjoyed that. And I also, it wasn't really talked about by Craig in the sort of aesthetics or design element, but things that I really enjoyed throughout the film were the broad landscapes Mm -hmm. where you'd have like a big mountain scene in the background and it wasn't hyper-realistic. It felt kind of like illustrative and it kind of made me feel like I was, just part of this incredible fantasy but in a way that didn't feel cheap mm. or cheesy and I think I'd go back just watch the sort of that sort of illustrative quality of the landscapes alone yeah the
0: shot on location <laughs> how about
1: that <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah I would agree with all of those points everybody have said I, I can't think I can really add anything on myself I will just say that as a DD and d player who's played for more than three decades that I was really impressed by what they did, that they actually managed to bring D&D alive in a way that people just cannot turn games into films. It, it seems to be impossible. I've, I've never seen any that have been really that good. And yeah, maybe this wasn't the best film in the universe ever, but I really enjoyed it. I saw it three times. That alone is going to be indicator of enjoyment. But for everything that you have just said, I would agree that this has been the best of films as you have been the best of parties. And it leaves me only to say, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, thank you for accompanying our brave party on their adventure through Dungeons & Dragons Honor Amongst Thieves. Truly they have battled and defeated the evils that ruin our film's enjoyment. Verily they have found those treasured characters and moments that will warm our hearts. But of course we should give thanks to the people and equipment that they have needed along the way to help them, which is the Iron Cross for the music that you'll be hearing on this podcast and I will say that if you enjoyed our tale then please consider subscribing to those bards that pass on our tales be they Apple Podcast Spotify or however else might be singing our praises you might also consider letting the barkeep know that booking us was a good idea by giving us a rating or comment or even talking us direct by searching for Neil Before Blog on Facebook Twitter or even neilbeforeblog.co.uk or perhaps simply by joining us another tale next time on Neil Before Pod. With that, I wish you good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good night, and of course, good adventuring.